Exodus uh, chapter 20, we come, we come to verse 17, which is the last, the tenth of the Ten Commandments. And so I'll just read that. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now I want to read on the next paragraph. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Starting several years ago in our cars, they put in check engine lights. I think those are more of a curse than a blessing because sometimes I'd rather not know that something's wrong with my car, but the check engine light comes on, and if it's still running fine, then I realize that this light is telling me there's something to repair, something's wrong. Uh, it's not there to solve anything. It's not as though we say, oh, look, the little orange engine is on on my dashboard, therefore it's fixing my engine. No, the Ten Commandments are somewhat like the check engine light. They tell us something wrong is wrong, but they don't really do anything to repair the situation. Today we come to the last of the Ten Commandments. And I want to give you an imaginary test that R.C. Sproul gives students when he teaches on the Ten Commandments. And he asks them this. He says, suppose the U.S. government were to collapse and you were called to Washington to create a new government. And you were to write ten foundational principles for the new government. The laws you were called to enact were limited to ten. What ten would you choose? Now, I can understand that we immediately would say, well, though it's got to be a law against murder, and yes, we've got to respect private property, so there needs to be a law against stealing. We need to protect the family, so there should be a law against adultery. But who would waste one of the, if you've only got ten, why waste one on something like coveting? Did God waste the tenth commandment? I mean, is this just reiterating what had been addressed in the eighth commandment (coughs) regarding stealing? Well, of course he didn't waste one. But if you've been here over the past several weeks and Eric and John hearing them teach, the conclusion when we study the Ten Commandments is pretty simple. Here's the conclusion. We're a mess. Nobody has it together. And so there's a a terrible misnomer in the church or a reputation of the church that the really mature Christian is the person who has it all together. Well, that just isn't true. And you can be a Christian for 50, 60 years, and you look in the mirror, and you know what your summary will be? I'm a mess. (laughs) I'm a mess. And perhaps nowhere are we messier than when we come to the the 10th commandment. What is coveting? We read verse 17. The key question is, who's our neighbor? You shall not covet your neighbor's house and so forth. Well, it's not just the person who lives on your street if you live in a neighborhood. Uh, In the Bible, it just means those with whom we have contact. Now, in today's world, that can be a large number of people, unlike when the the Ten Commandments were written. So what does it mean to covet? 
uh, it's obviously more than merely admiring something or having a desire for something. I mean, you have desires. I assume you had desire. I'm hungry. I'd like to eat. Is it wrong to desire food? No, it's not that. It's, well, the Hebrew term means strong desire. Uh, Thinking, I have to have something to be content. Uh, I have to have that to be fulfilled. I have to have that to be satisfied. So there's a big difference between thinking, oh, I like that, that's nice, and I have to have it. Uh, Some time ago, I did a little informal survey around the church facility here asking people to, in their mind, what was coveting. And I remember one woman, and I got several responses from the formal, such as coveting is an all-encompassing compulsion to possess something. (laughs) I must have asked an engineer at that point what coveting was. But I remember one woman said, oh, coveting? Coveting is when I just say, I've got to have it. I've just got to have it. If I don't have it, I'll die. I like that. I think she, I think she got the sense of the verse at that point. In, in uh, the Reformed tradition, Reformed churches like the Presbyterian Church, we have a catechism, which is a teaching mechanism with questions and answers. And in our larger catechism, it asks this, what are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? In other words, what does this forbid? And the answer is the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. So that's what it, that's a formal uh, description of what it forbids. And then it asks the question, what are the duties required by the Tenth Commandment? It says the duties required in the Tenth Commandment are to be so fully content with your own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor so that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Now, I realize I'm reading that, and you, you do well if you just get the basic gist of it. But in our culture, there is a noticeable, notable, even a notorious lack of contentment. I know of a man who went to play golf with three other men, two of the Two of the three were stockbrokers. And he asked them, how many of your clients are content? And they thought for a few minutes, and they both said, I can't think of one client who is content. Everybody wants more. But even in the church, we often fail to see our own coveting. George Barna, who has studied every demographic, it seems like, related to churches in America, he surveyed Bible-believing, those that claim to believe the Bible in America, and he found that half of those he surveyed said they don't violate this commandment. Well, I think we'll see in a moment. All that tells me is that the church doesn't know what sin is. <laughs> okay, all right, so let's begin for a few minutes. The check engine light is getting ready to come on. And here's some of the calamity of coveting. What's at the heart of coveting? When you and I covet, we essentially are saying to God, you have not lived up to my expectations. You have not lived up to your job. I am not satisfied with this situation or this position in life. Your performance is not what it should be, and I'm not satisfied with you. Now, that's, that's what coveting is. It's desiring what God has provided others, and he hasn't provided for me. And so covetousness is a lack of contentment with what God has given me in this life. When I covet what someone else has, I'm saying, why didn't you give that to me? 
Those should be my spiritual gifts. That should be my job or my house or my wife or my money or my family or my reputation or whatever, whatever it may be. Well, how did this happen? How did we get in this mess to where we covet? The first sin was coveting. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. Satan said, wouldn't you like to be like God? That's what's really behind this little prohibition about not eating from that tree. And they said, yes, we would like to be like God. So they coveted God's power in in his position. And like them, then we covet God's worship. So we violate the first three commandments. Then we covet God's time. And we say, well, Sunday's my only day. And God says it's his day. And I'll say, well, no, this is the day I get to spend the way I want. So we covet the fourth commandment. We break that in coveting God's time. Cain is envious toward his brother. Envy and coveting go in hand, so he murders his brother. He breaks the sixth commandment. What about the fifth commandment of honor your father and your mother? Well, we covet authority. We don't want to submit to someone else who has authority over us, the police or the law. We covet that for ourselves. So we break that commandment, the fifth. And then what about coveting other people's spouses? We break that. That's the seventh commandment. Then we covet other people's things. We steal. That's the eighth commandment. Then we covet other people's good name and reputation, and we bear false witness. That breaks the ninth commandment. Coveting is at the heart of breaking all the commandments. One of the key examples in the Bible is with David and Bathsheba. Here's this king. He's on, he goes out at night. He sees this woman bathing in old Jerusalem. He begins to desire this woman, the wife of another man. Is David sexually deprived? Does he not have a wife? He's got several at that time. Uh, But he's coveting this other man's wife. And this becomes the foundation of the other sins. Where does it lead? Well, he sins for her. Adultery is committed, breaking the seventh commandment. Tries to cover up his sin by having... Her husband placed in the front of battle and inadvertently murdered, breaks there, breaking that commandment, the sixth commandment. He takes Bathsheba to be his wife, so he steals her, so he breaks the eighth commandment. So out of coveting grows the violation of every other sin. We all have covetous hearts. We all want to dethrone God. Well, how do we violate this command? Well, we covet position and prestige that we don't have. We uh, long for positions that other people have. If I was speaking to students, I'd say there's your classmate who never seems to crack a book or never worked a single day in his or her life. They're given everything money can buy, but your situation is otherwise. You study hard, and the best you can do is make C's and B's. Your friend never even uh, goes to class and makes straight A's. There's your coworker, has the better office. You'd like the corner office. I remember, y'all remember Sam Capel, Sam and Marianne? Some of you that have been here, Sam and Marianne. He was one of our pastors and uh, uh, with, with, with more of the senior members of our congregation, but very seasoned in ministry after many years, and his wife was a hoot. And she was hilarious. And one day, one of our youth pastor had just left, and there were about three of us standing in the hallway looking into his office. <laughs> and one of the guys said, I want that message machine that's on the desk and somebody else said I want that chair and Marianne comes walking by like this and she just turned the corner and goes body isn't even cold yet (laughs) you want what they have you resent that other person's income or their perks or their freedom or their prestige 
You pour yourself into being a godly parent. Many of you can probably relate to this. You read books on such. You listen to every broadcast to focus on the family. Your child grows up and has no heart for God, from all indication. There's your neighbor. Never goes to church. Every weekend is out of town. Has this exemplary child who racks up every honor in school and is a very committed Christian to go with it. We covet people. We covet another person's husband or another person's wife. Boy, I'd like to be married to her. That guy got a steal with her. Man, if he ever dies. I know nobody here ever thinks that way, but just in case you ever meet someone who does. Or the woman who says, boy, that woman's husband is so kind and sensitive. How did I get stuck with Mr. Dull? You know, we covet the spouse of others. Remember that story Gary Smalley said about the woman who'd look out every afternoon and she'd see this, our neighbor across the street, her husband would come in at 5 o'clock, he'd have flowers and, you know, it, and, uh, and would uh, embrace there at the door. And, and so the husband, he, he watched this, you know, or the wife watched this every day and she, she goes to her husband and says, why can't, you see what happens across the street? Why can't you do that? Why can't you do that? He says, honey, I don't even know that woman. <laughs> Children covet their friends' parents. So we not only covet spouses, we covet their friends. Married people covet the single people. Single people covet the married people. Children covet their friends' parents. Young couples covet the wealth of their parents and count the days until they will inherit it. We all have covetous hearts. And we are besieged not only by the fact we have covetous hearts, we have a culture with our advertising gurus that 300 times a day are the averages that we are told we don't have what we need or what we deserve. Okay, so we covet prestige and position, we covet people, we covet the stuff of others. There's Joshua chapter 7 and the sin of Achan. After the fall of the city of Jericho, he sees, it quote says, I saw among the spoil the beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, and then I coveted them and took them. He said to himself, I got to have it, I got to have it, I'll just die if I don't have it. And he set his desire on those. We covet the stuff of others. We want their house or their pool or their furniture or their new kitchen or their granite countertops or their yard or their yard service. And we turn shopping into entertainment. We entertain ourselves by just thinking about other items, clothes, toys, whatever it is that thrills you. We covet the jobs of other people. We desire their success when they are promoted or recognized. So we all sin by coveting. Who among us does not envy, to some degree, the prosperity of others? Someone in your life. I grew up and I have two cousins, and uh, neither, neither of them are spiritually minded at all from what I can tell. And yet both got into the diamond sales business, right, really right out of college. And they made loads of money, loads of money. Funny, witty, and, and, I, and I would watch that when we get together, and I like these guys. I care for these guys. But it's hard not to look at that and say, Lord, you have misplaced the, uh, the price tags. 
You know, it's like somebody went into Walmart with a price gun and put the wrong prices on everything. Who's never been disappointed when you hear of another worker that received a raise and you say, I've worked here longer than they have? Or, or no one notices what I do? Is there never a twinge of spite when we see friends we grew up with who went to school with them and they're successful and prosperous and yet we can't seem to get a career going? Can you really say you've never secretly desired what someone else owns? Or how another person is always healthy and you're always sick? You know, you're in the doctor's office every other month. And yet you tend to give a whole lot more uh, effort to eating right and taking care of yourself. Does it bring you joy when your neighbor experiences success? Do you rejoice in God's providential dealings with others who may appear so much more delightful than your own? What's the remedy to a covetous heart? Is the, is the check engine light kind of coming on? I mean, when we look at this and we see the depth of how far down this, this, this commandment goes into our hearts, what's the remedy? Well, you could say, well, the, the way to solve covetousness is to, to cease your desires. Well, that won't work. You know, you say, well, others would say, well, I'll fulfill all my desires. I've got a covetous heart. If I just get that, then I'll quit coveting. (laughs) We think that all the time. No, we quickly tire of new things. So then uh, can we just steal our emotions and our feelings and our desires and so become stoical? Remember the old Stoics in history, the philosophers in the time of the New Testament, and their view was always expect the worst. You'll never be disappointed. You know, so regardless of what happens, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. No, that won't work. The remedy is found in learning contentment. The remedy to covetousness is contentment. And from what the Bible says, we have to learn contentment. Here are the amazing words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. I'll read it to you. Unless you're a Baptist, you won't get there before I finish reading. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I have learned to be content. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. So the opposite of covetousness is contentment. John Piper said, when contentment in God decreases, covetousness for gain increases. The Bible calls covetousness, you know what the Bible's word for it is? Tell me. Idolatry. That's what it says it is. Why? Because the contentment that the heart should be getting from God, the heart is trying to get from something else. So watch this. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, ends with coveting. The Ten Commandments begin and end with virtually the same commandment. It's like they're two bookends. You shall have no other gods before me. Coveting is desiring anything other than God in a way that leads to a loss of contentment and satisfaction in him. The Apostle Paul had found his ultimate satisfaction in having a relationship with God. So are you content? I don't mean that you lack drive or that you lack ambition. That's not what's being described here. But are you basically content with your place in life? 
If you can answer that, yes, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. I, I can only imagine. I mean, when I read those words by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, they are like the Mount Everest, you know, the Mount Everest of the Christian experience. And I'm standing down here on the, the flatlands looking up. Now, words to an unbeliever. If I were an atheist, I would be very troubled by this, by this uh, commandment. Here's why. I was taught, I went to a secular university. I was taught what anyone who's been in higher education was taught, which is we are animals. Humans are animals. Not what the Bible teaches, not what I believe, but that's what I was taught. If humans are animals, why is it that no other animals on earth acquire more than they need? If we're all just animals and we're a higher form of animals and we've been socialized in ways that horses and cows and squirrels haven't, why is it that no other animals on earth acquire more than they need? If we're animals, why do we want so much stuff? <laughs> you say, well, squirrels, they store up. Yeah, but they just store up for the next season. They know winter's coming. Deep down, we all have a longing for satisfaction. Here's, I think, what the answer is. And this is why I said it would trouble me as if I was an atheist. Because God has hardwired into you and me and every person a deep longing that can only be satisfied by God himself. It's as C.S. Lewis said, if we're not satisfied with this world and we aren't, then it just tells us God has made us for the next world. <laughs> Where we won't, because we won't have ultimate satisfaction in this life. We will only have it when we go to be with him. So that longing, that desire for more, is a longing for life in its complete form, eternal life. And that longing can only be fulfilled in a, reliving, a living relationship with God. You know, the old philosopher said there's a God-shaped vacuum in every person. And so that longing can be really powerful. And to, in our fallen natures, we all have the same longing, but we try to meet it in other ways. Some try to meet it with just filling it up with experiences or things or more or people or relationships like the woman at the well. And so even 700 years before Christ was born of a virgin, Isaiah the prophet said, Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? So the solution to coveting is finding fulfillment in God. To be content, we have to have faith in the sovereignty of God. Covetousness and discontentment is basically saying, Lord, you have messed up. You have given me a wrong deal. My life should not be like this. It should be more like his or hers. And it's your mistake that it isn't. That's what's at the, the root of it. So contentment begins to come as you realize that your life is in the hands of a loving, merciful, heavenly Father who's working all things together for good in your life, though it may look confusing, it may be painful, it may pale a comparison to others now, but he's doing that for your good and his glory. And Paul believed that, the overruling providence of God. I don't think anyone can be really content or begin to be content who does not believe in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God that he's ultimately the source of all that happens. It doesn't excuse us of sin and responsibility, not that God is the author of sin, but he overrules things with his providence. Now, this, is, this lack of contentment is not unique to us in America in the 21st century. Over 400 years ago, a Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs 
wrote what has become a classic in Christian literature called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Isn't that a great title? The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in that, he said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. God's wise and fatherly disposal. So I think it's recognizing that lack of contentment is me saying, God, you have messed up, but he hasn't messed up. And so it leads us through things to conform us to the image of Christ. That's what had made Paul a contented man. He learned to trust God, whether he didn't have any food, whether he had a lot of food, whether he had food and shelter, whether he didn't, whether he had little or a lot. And last of all, contentment must be learned. And it doesn't come overnight. And it's learned by experience and maturity, and Paul learned it. And he's got a school where he typically teaches us contentment. You know what the name of the school is? It's not Central. It's not Miller. It's suffering. And the teacher is named Trial. Paul writes Philippians from jail. He was deprived of food. He was deprived of fellowship, friendship. And so the classroom he was in was suffering, and the teacher was named Trial. And some of you are hurting Some have been abused. Some perhaps have legal problems. Your family's not going the right way but the wrong way. And I'll tell you, suffering is the best teacher of contentment. Because in suffering and in pain, you realize God is all you have. (laughs) It's pretty simple. This is not complex. If this is sounding complex, it's my fault. In suffering, we realize not only is God all that we have, he's all we need. He's all we need. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. And I have uh, known many people that were in the final weeks or days of their lives. And I've never talked to a person who just found out they had a fatal disease. Said, you know, I'm so grateful. Why are you grateful? Oh, It's terrible news, but I'm so grateful. Why? I've got a brand new car in the driveway. I've never heard anybody say that. I am so grateful. Why? Because I'm going to get a year-end bonus this year. (laughs) That's not the way we think. We're grateful because I know God is with me. I know God is at work. And I know I'm in God's hand. And here's the good news. You can learn it too. Paul's experience was not unique because he was apostle. There were certain things that were unique to Paul. He had a revelation of heaven and the second heaven and all that. You know, those were things that we know that was unique to him. That is not normal Christian experience. But learning contentment was not reserved just for an apostle. That's for any of us. So I conclude with this. Got one minute left. John chapter 4. Jesus and the woman at the well. She tried everything for satisfaction, five five husbands, now a living companion. Jesus offers her this special kind of water, says, Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And what happens? She gets the water right there. He doesn't condemn her for her adultery, her divorces, and so forth. 
Uh, She didn't need condemnation. He pointed that out to say, you have not found satisfaction. You have not found contentment. And you're not going to find it in the way you're going. But I can give you water that will satisfy you. It will quench the thirst of your soul. You and I are like that woman. Her culture had said she was worth little. She probably, I mean, that woman, you talk about somebody who was completely unempowered, was the woman at the well. And Jesus tells her she's worth a lot. <laughs> so do you know Christ? Are you aware of his purpose for your life? Do you realize having more, whatever more is, will not satisfy the thirst of your soul? Because you have a soul that God designed that will live forever and it can only be satisfied by knowing Christ. I think even as Christians, the reason we don't experience the deepest satisfaction here is because we don't know him the way that we will know him. This is a partial knowledge of Christ. Then, as Paul said, we shall know in full. So that's what you have to ask yourself. What's really important? What Madison Avenue tells me or what God tells me? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the work of Jesus to die a substitutionary death on a Roman cross so that our sins could be paid for to meet your justice and that we can have life, we can have contentment through him. We pray for each of us here that know you that even the attitude and the experience of the Apostle Paul as he talked about how he'd learned contentment, that you would be working that in us as well. Um, Lord, looking around this room, I mean, all of us have, have a number of decades on us. Surely at this stage we ought to be able to say, no, new things don't satisfy. So we pray that we would uh, humble ourselves before you, that whatever trials we're going through, whatever suffering, that in your providence we would look to you to learn contentment from those things and not to trust in the temporary things of this world uh, that are only for a short time. In Jesus' name, amen.